listening to the Audio Information Network of Colorado. This recording is intended to be used solely by individuals with barriers to print. Thank you for listening to the Jefferson County News for the week of January 26th, 2023. My name is Gregory Haddock. For today's reading, we will be covering the following stories. The Long Way Home our in-depth look at the housing crisis. Racial inequities, black Coloradans often face barriers in home ownership. Some now look to build equity for future generations. By Nina Joss and Haley Lena. Denver bought one-way bus tickets for 1,900 migrants, where they went, by Jennifer Brown and John Ingold, the Colorado Sun. Lawmakers want to eliminate all carbon emissions by 2050 by Michael Booth and Jesse Paul, the Colorado Sun. A new vision, American dream changing for some Coloradans by Christy Stedman. And a look at the suburbs. Map experts dig for roots of racial separation in Metro Denver by Ellis Arnold. The Long Way Home, our in-depth look at the housing crisis Racial inequities, black Coloradans often face barriers in home ownership. Some now look to build equity for future generations. By Nina Joss and Haley Lena. A few years ago, Aurora Warms the Night, an Aurora-based nonprofit serving people who need housing, ran into a challenge when assisting its black clients in applying for apartments. When the applicants visited properties, landlords denied their applications. This happened over and over again. So the team decided to take a different approach, sending in white volunteers to check out the apartments first. Quote, I would send one of our employees or people that were white to look at the apartment to get the pricing, get everything, to make sure everything was available, said Brian Arnold, who was executive director of the group at the time five years ago. After that, we did the application online and sent it, to, sent it in without them being able to see the person. Once the application got approved, the team at Aurora Warms the Night would let the real estate agents see the client was black. Arnold said this process worked almost every time and became the organization's own way of making a dent in the discrimination that people of color may face, but find difficult to prove. Because many of the individuals served by the group were facing homelessness and unemployment, Arnold acknowledged that these factors could have played a role in their initial application rejections. However, when they conducted the blind application process with the same financial information, the applications were approved. For Arnold, this just confirmed race was a barrier. The racism is just so out there, he said. It was easy to realize it. Arnold's group did not file any complaints because their main priority was getting their clients house, and they found a way to do that. Colorado Community Media reached out to Aurora Warms the Night to see if this is still a strategy, but did not get a response. But once a black client successfully got on a lease, Arnold said even more challenges ensued if they were looking to someday own a home. How do we get them from renting into home ownership, he said. Those barriers seem to be some of the biggest. For decades, home ownership rates for black people have lagged far behind those for white people. Census data released last month shows just how wide that gap is. 
More than 7 in 10 white Coloradans and a little more than half of Latino residents own their homes, according to the 2021 five-year American Community Survey. Only 42% of black Coloradans own their homes. Although Latino home buyers in Colorado face many of the same barriers as black home buyers, their rates of home ownership have grown in recent years. For black Coloradans, on the other hand, the numbers have remained stubbornly low. These trends hold across the metro area with Adams, Jefferson, Arapahoe, and Douglas counties all showing higher rates of home ownership in white communities than in those of color. The reasons for this gap are myriad, but over time, black Coloradans have generally had less opportunity to build home equity and wealth to pass from one generation to the next. These barriers mean many metro Denver communities lack racial and ethnic diversity. Through training and other measures, many are now trying to reverse this situation and improve access to housing for all. A denied opportunity to build generational wealth. In 2021, Theo E.J. Wilson and his wife started looking to buy a home in Aurora. Wilson is a black college lecturer and nonfiction television host. Like many Coloradans, regardless of color, Wilson and his wife did not have enough money for a down payment in today's expensive housing market, even though they both make a good living. In Arapahoe County, the median sale price of a single-family home increased by $180,000 over the past five years, according to the Colorado Association of Realtors. In other metro Denver areas, the numbers have skyrocketed even more drastically. While many white Americans may have been benefited from their efforts to of their ancestors, particularly through inheritances, Wilson says many black people, including him, were denied that possibility. In his eyes, that's part of why home ownership has been so elusive. Quote, in what some of my elders have called the illusion of inclusion, income is used as a metric to say that things are getting better for black people, Wilson said. But he pointed out, Income is different from wealth. For generations, quote, white America was building wealth, assets, and the skill set and personnel to manage that wealth, he said. Wilson's older family members, on the other hand, were not offered the same opportunities, he said. Wilson's grandfather was in the Army Air Forces during World War II, a Tuskegee Airman, one of a pioneering group of black military aviators. When he returned to New York City after the war, he did not receive federally backed home loans like his white counterparts did. Quote, they basically shoveled these white vets from World War II into programs that gave them college money and programs that gave them homes in the suburbs, Wilson said. Imagine if my grandpa would have got the property that he would have got had he been white in New York City. How much would that be worth today? Many black veterans face issues using the programs offered by the GI Bill. They often could not access banks for home loans, were excluded from certain neighborhoods, and faced segregationist policies. Instead of a home in the suburbs, and despite his service to his country, Wilson's grandfather wound up in low-income housing. There he raised Wilson's father, who was not able to attend college. Quote, The only physical thing that I have from my grandfather, besides his DNA, is a collection of hats. That shouldn't have been the case, Wilson said. I should have more from him than his name, his jeans, and some hats.
In that era, federal authorities also made color-coded maps that reflected the practice of restricting access to home loans in certain areas, largely based on race. This practice is known as redlining. People of color were also excluded from obtaining housing through, quote, racially restrictive covenants, or text written into property records that was used to prevent people of certain races from purchasing certain homes. Some exclusionary policies, which have been documented in the Denver area, left a toll that's evident in communities of color today. Family wealth is a good measure of that. In 2019, the median white family in the country had about $184,000 in wealth, compared to just $38,000 and $23,000 for the median Hispanic and black families, respectively. That's according to data from the Federal Reserve Survey of Consumer Finances. These numbers speak to the notion of generational wealth. Generational wealth is anything of financial value that is passed from one generation to another, including money, property, investments, valuable heirlooms, or businesses. Think about the wealth that was created during the 40s and 50s that white families have been able to leverage generation after generation, either to send their kids to college to be able to start a business, to writing a check for their loved ones to be able to have money for a down payment in order to buy their own home and continue that generational wealth transfer, said Aisha Weeks, Managing Director at the Deerfield Fund for Black Wealth, a Denver area group that emphasizes home ownership. That wasn't available in mass for black and African-American families, end quote. A family's primary residence is typically their most valuable asset, according to the National Association of Realtors. It's not just the monetary value of a house and property that adds to wealth. There are tax benefits for homeowners, and people can borrow against a home, home's equity to start a business or to help with unexpected bills. Homeownership also provides stable housing, which has been shown to positively impact health and educational achievement. These factors can, in turn, improve a person's economic prosperity. Trying to change the equation. The Deerfield Fund for Black Wealth offers down payment assistance. Loans with no interest and no monthly payments are up to $40,000 or 15% of the purchase price for black homeowners. We acknowledge that there's a generational wealth gap, and so Deerfield Fund is work walking alongside our clients and borrowers to say, we will provide that down payment assistance, Weeks said. This program helped Wilson and his wife buy their home in Aurora. In addition, the fund also offers advice and education on how to build that wealth. Quote, we know that there are so many pitfalls and just things that as a community we have not learned at the dinner table like our counterparts, Weeks said. There's a lot of power in the knowledge information transfer that happens within other communities that we need to make sure that families are understanding. That issue of being at the proverbial dinner table comes up a lot for communities of color. Without an example to follow, some first-time homebinders don't know where to begin. According to Alma Vigil, a loan, local loan officer assistant, Families who do not own homes often do not pass along information about how to own and maintain a home. To address this challenge, the Colorado Housing and Finance Authority offers home buyer education programs to teach Coloradans financial skills and the steps to home ownership. These classes are offered in English and Spanish in an effort to remedy language barriers, which can add challenges for potential home buyers who do not speak English.
There's very few Spanish-speaking loan officers, said Vigil, who is Hispanic and speaks Spanish herself. There are some that claim to speak Spanish, but they're not very fluent. So it becomes a huge problem, especially with lack of understanding. In order to close the gaps, some lenders across the metro Denver area provide services in Spanish. A list of Spanish-speaking lenders can be found on the Colorado Housing and Finance Authority's website. The issue isn't just one faced by Hispanic and Latino communities. A report by the National Coalition for Asian Pacific American Community Development found language barriers are also often a challenge for members of the Asian American community when pursuing home ownership. In addition to conversations with lenders, real estate paperwork and documents rarely come in languages other than English. Debt to income ratio. Over the last couple of years, Brandon Stepter, a community consultant, has been working in Broomfield. In an effort to bring more people of color into the community, Stepter looks at housing infrastructure, housing practices, and community practices. Stepter and his wife, Gabrielle, both of whom are black, have been renting in Aurora, but have recently been looking to purchase a home. We thought we would be pretty solid in that regard, and we both make a decent amount of money, Stepter said. We thought we would be able to start looking even in this market to try and find an equitable home that fits our budget. Stepter, who also works as a healthcare administrator, and his wife, who works for a technology company, said they are trying to figure out how to pay off their student debt so they can get a home loan within the next couple of years. I think right now what we're seeing is a lot of younger African Americans who are in copious amounts of student debt, and that has been preventing them from owning a home, Stepter said. Debt-to-income ratio is often a significant barrier for black people who are looking to buy a home because that number is assessed when underwriters are deciding whether or not to give a mortgage, according to Jice Johnson, founder of the Black Business Initiative. The Black Business Initiative is a Denver-based organization that focuses on economic equity in the black community. In America, you are encouraged to graduate high school and go to college, Johnson said. Typically speaking, because you don't have access, when you go to college, you're not going to pay for college outright. Instead, you're going to get a student loan. So it increases the debt side of your ratio by a lot, oftentimes preventing you from purchasing a home. Black college graduates tend to owe thousands of dollars more in student debt, on average, than their white peers. According to a 2016 report from the Brookings Institution, the amount can exceed $7,000 at the date of graduation. Black and Hispanic workers also tend to be paid less than their white counterparts, according to many studies on the subject. In 2020, black workers in Colorado earned 74%, and Latino workers in Colorado earned 71% of the hourly earnings of white workers, according to numbers from the 2020 five-year American Community Survey. So you go to school, you get the degree, which is what you're supposed to do, and you get the high-paying job, Johnson said. Now you come out and you have debt and also your income isn't as high as it should be. So your entire debt to income ratio doesn't allow for you to purchase a home. Discrimination. In a national statistical analysis of more than 2 million conventional mortgage applications for home purchases, a database news publication called The Markup found that lenders were 40% 
more likely to turn down Latino applicants for loans, 50% more likely to deny Asian Pacific Islander applicants, 70% more likely to deny Native American applicants, and 80% more likely to reject black applicants compared with similar white applicants. Even for families of color that may not struggle immediately with wealth and knowledge disparities, discrimination persists in the housing market. People of color are often treated dif differently in appraisals, lending practices, and neighborhood options. Stories about what that looks like in the Denver area abound. Johnson of the Black Business Initiative lived in Westminster before moving to Aurora. When she was staging her home to sell, her real estate agent gave her some advice. It was encouraged for me to make sure I had no family photos up, she said. Meanwhile, she visited homes for sale that had photos of white families. Johnson said it was good business advice. Her black realtor, Delroy Gill, understood the landscape and was looking out for her. That's my realtor trying to get me top dollar, she said. The question is why would leaving photos prevent me from getting top dollar? Gill said the practice of taking down photos removes potential hurdles that could occur for his clients. For black clients, race is sadly one of those hurdles that could affect how appraisers, inspectors, and potential home buyers view the home, he said. We do know racism is a real thing, he said, and it exists in every facet of life. So therefore, when you are faced with the unknown, it's better to make the adjustments based on how society is versus taking the risk of creating more damage on black wealth by them receiving less funds for their homes. The advice Gill gave Johnson was not unique. Paige Omohundro, business development manager at the Colorado Housing and Finance Authority, said her team heard similar stories in recent focus groups with real estate agents, nonprofits, lenders, housing advocates, and people trying to achieve home ownership in black and African American communities. She said these stories were shared by members of Hispanic and Latino communities as well. Gill said that because of his precautions, discrimination rarely impacts his clients' sales. One time, however, the preparation was not enough. A couple of years ago, Gill was working with an interracial couple to sell their home in Parker. When the appraiser arrived, the black husband was leaving the property. Quote, I own investment properties in the area, so I know the area very well, Gill said, and I used to live in the neighborhood. So the value that we gave to the house was very appropriate. And the appraisal came in $100,000 less than our value. According to Gill, the buyers who were whites decided to pay the extra $100,000 out of pocket because they knew the original asking price was fair. The agent and the buyers thought that the price was reasonable and that the appraiser made a big mistake, Gill said. We tried to dispute the appraisal and failed. He said he's not going to change it. Gill said the home buyers noted that the low appraisal was probably due to racial discrimination. According to a 2021 study by Freddie Mac, a government-sponsored mortgage buying company, this experience was not rare. Black and Latino applicants get lower appraisal values in the contract price more often than white applicants, according to the study. The study found that based on over 12 million appraisals from January 1st, 2016 to December 31st, 2020, 8.6% of black applicants receive an appraisal value lower than contract price, compared to 6.5% of white applicants. In the study, Freddie Mac said it would be 
valuable to conduct further research to understand why this gap exists. In a report by the National Fair Housing Alliance, however, personal stories like that of Gill's clients make the case that the appraisal gap comes from racial or ethnic discrimination. One of these stories, originally reported by the Washington Post, was about a mixed-race couple in Denver. An appraiser greeted by the white wife valued the house at $550,000, whereas one greeted by the black husband valued it at $405,000. The lower value appraisal report explicitly compared the home to others in a nearby predominantly black neighborhood, even though that's not where the house was located. Since 1968, housing discrimination based on race has been illegal under the Fair Housing Act. Nine years before that federal law was signed, Colorado was the first state to pass its own fair housing laws, according to the Colorado Housing and Finance Authority. Although it is illegal, discrimination is hap in housing based on race or color still happens, according to the Department of Justice. The department has filed cases related to lending discrimination, including a 2012 Wells Fargo case in which the bank was forced to pay a settlement for its pattern of discrimination against qualified black and African-American and Hispanic and Latino borrowers. There are efforts to change the process, according to the Urban Institute, a nonprofit research organization. 89% of all property appraisers and assessors are white, while only 2% are black and 5% are Hispanic. Addressing the lack of diversity in the profession could improve outcomes for black and Hispanic communities, the organization said. The Appraiser Diversity Initiative, a program led by mortgage buying companies Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac and civil rights organization, the National Urban League, is teaching new potential appraisers with a diversity of identities in an effort to close this gap. Approaching inclusion in real estate from a wider perspective a program through the Urban Land Institute Colorado works to train women and people of color in development. This program, called the Real Estate Diversity Initiative, aims to create urban landscapes that serve diverse communities. I think trust in community building is key, Executive Director Rodney Milton said. When developers build projects, they need community support because they're shaping the community. And who better to be equipped to strengthen a community to build it out to revitalize it than the folks who are from that community. Welcome to Fairhaven. Housing is a source of discrimination complaints. The Colorado Civil Rights Commission annual report found that 14% of complaints were claims about housing issues. Chantal Sundberg, a black realtor who works in the metro Denver area, said she has not witnessed or experienced discrimination in her work with her clients, most of whom are black. Everyone is treated equal, whether it's borrowing or buying homes, she said. Sundberg witnessed the 1994 Rwandans genocide when hundreds of thousands of members of a minority, minority ethnic group called the Tutsi were murdered by members of the Hutu ethnic majority. In her eyes, although it might be important to talk about topics of racial discrimination, focusing on them too much can have unintended consequences. When we emphasize them so much, it creates more division rather than unity. She said, still, 
Discrimination is an ongoing concern for the National Association of Realtors and Brokers. Sundberg said realtors are trained to address discrimination, discrimination issues. And to Gill, the realtor who helped Johnson sell her home, the association's training is not enough to help all real estate agents. Race is a part of it, but it's not the in-depth, you know, how to understand if you're being a racist or not, he said. To address such concerns, the association released an immersive online simulation in 2020 that aims to train agents to recognize and avoid acting on their own biases. The program is part of the association's Fair Housing Act plan, which leaders created to emphasize accountability and culture change. The training is meant to make housing more accessible and affordable to people of color. A white Colorado community media reporter went through the online simulation, which takes place in a fictional town called Fairhaven. The simulation puts a person in the shoes of potential homebuyers who are experiencing discrimination. One scenario is based on a federal court case, Clinton Brown v. Hardick. In 2020, Todd Brown and Ebony Clinton Brown filed a suit against Helene L. and John Hardick, alleging violations of the Fair Housing Act and Rhode Island law. The case claims the Hardicks noticed Clinton Brown's first name and asked their real estate agent if Ebony was black. When they learned she was, the Hardicks refused to sell their property and the agent withdrew the listing upon the Hardicks' request, seizing communication. Throughout the simulation, agents attempt to theoretically sell four homes within six months while coming across day-to-day -day happenings, including the views of colleagues and encounter issues like language barriers. The simulator provides for moments of reflection in the sales process. At the end of the training, agents are given feedback. According to Alexia Smokler of the National Association of Realtors, the organization decided to pursue the simulator after a Newsday investigation revealed alleged housing discrimination on Long Island, New York. We wanted to show how discrimination plays out in real life scenarios, so we drew on real fair housing cases and frequently asked questions from our members to create these simulated scenarios so they could see how discrimination looks, Smokler said. Scenarios in the simulation are based on true stories. They include testimonials to show discrimination from the perspective of race, disability, and LGBTQ plus identities. We've had people tell us watching these videos, they're very emotional videos, that they are in tears, that they're angry, that they're going to stand up for their clients. And also we've had folks say, I wasn't aware of these sorts of things are going on. And this has really opened my eyes, Smokler said. Brian Arnold who used to work with clients at Aurora Warms the night, said training like Fairhaven could help combat discrimination. But he noted that since the Fairhaven, Fairhaven simulation is not a mandatory step in real estate agent licensing, it is challenging to ensure people who need the training actually do it. For your real estate agents that are doing well, that are maybe using discriminatory practices, how are you going to get those people to use it? Arnold said. Unless it's a mandatory program, then it's just a nice program that's out there that could help. Denver bought one-way bus tickets for 1,900 migrants. Where they went? By Jennifer Brown and John Ingold, the Colorado Sun. Denver spent nearly a half million dollars last month 
buying one-way Greyhound bus tickets to other cities for 1,900 migrants who arrived here after crossing the U.S. southern border, according to data released Friday by the Sun to the Sun by city officials. The most popular destinations were New York and Illinois, but also Florida, Georgia, and Texas. The spending does not include tickets purchased by the city so far in January or spending by the state, which paid for chartered buses for four or five days this month to send groups of migrants to other destinations, mainly New York and Chicago. Denver sent 399 migrants to Chicago and 345 to New York City in December. The city also sent 122 to Atlanta, 95 each to Miami and Orlando, and 68 to Dallas. In all, for the month, the city spent $492,000 on bus tickets. State officials have not yet responded to requests from the Sun for an accounting of the number of people taken to other cities on chartered buses. Sending migrants to other destinations has been controversial. The mayors of New York City and Chicago last week sent a letter to Governor Jared Polis saying, quote, they respectfully demand that you cease and desist sending migrants to their cities. Chicago Mayor Lori Lightfoot and New York City Mayor Eric Adams said they had received hundreds of migrants from Colorado since December. Polis said Colorado is stepping in to help people, mainly from politically unstable Venezuela reached their final destinations, where he said they had family or friends. He estimated 70% of migrants who arrived in Colorado during the past month were trying to get somewhere else. But he called off the chartered bus operations after talking to Lightfoot and Adams last week. Denver officials, meanwhile, reiterated Friday that none of the migrants was asked to leave the city, which had been housing hundreds of people each night in three emergency shelters set up to handle the influx of newcomers, many of whom have arrived without warm clothing and wearing sandals. Since December 9th, more than 4,100 migrants from Central and South America have arrived in Denver. I want to ensure that it's doubly clear that each of these passengers have asked for assistance to get transportation to these destinations, and we facilitated their trips by purchasing tickets said Michaela Ortega, a spokeswoman for Denver's Office of Emergency Management, which is operating the emergency shelters. Denver's one-way ticket purchases and the Democratic governor's short-lived chartered busing operation thrust the state into a national controversy that began last spring, when other governors began sending migrants around the country. Texas Governor Greg Abbott, a Republican, sent thousands of migrants to Chicago, Washington, D.C., and New York during the spring and summer. And on Christmas Eve, two buses dropped off about 100 people outside the home of Vice President Kamala Harris in Washington. The White House blamed the Texas governor, who said he was fed up with federal immigration policy. In September, Florida Governor Ron DeSantis, also a Republican, spent state funds to round up about 50 migrants in Texas and fly them to the island of Martha's Vineyard in Massachusetts, calling it a relocation program. Colorado officials have said they do not believe the migrants were sent here by another state, but that they organized their trips based on information from nonprofits and fellow travelers. Word spread quickly that Denver, 
a so-called sanctuary city because local law enforcement does not cooperate with immigration officials seeking to deport people for not having required documentation, had warm shelter, beds, and food. The migrant arrivals dropped off this week down to about 50 people per day rather than the 100 per day a couple of weeks ago. Denver planned to begin dismantling the shelters consisting of cots and mats in the city's recreation centers and asked more community groups to step up to house migrants. About 500 people were sleeping in the city's three shelters each night this week and about 550 at other shelters in the community. The story is from the Colorado Sun, a journalist-owned news outlet based in Denver and covering the state. For more and to support the Colorado Sun, visit coloradosun.com. Colorado Sun is a partner in the Colorado News Conservancy, owner of Colorado Community Media. Lawmakers want to eliminate all carbon emissions by 2050. By Michael Booth and Jesse Paul, Colorado Sun. One of the boldest climate change and air pollution bills set for debate in the legislature this year would attempt to eliminate all of Colorado's carbon emissions by 2050, set tough interim goals for greenhouse gas reduction, and try again for a 30% tax credit for clean electric lawn and garden equipment. Denver Democratic Senator Chris Hansen is sponsoring the Senate Bill 16, which would also direct the state pension funds to use its shareholder rights to push climate change measures officially classify sewage to heat exchanges as clean energy sources and speed up improvement of transmission lines to boost renewable energy production. It's unclear how much support Hansen's bill will receive from the Polis administration, which at times has been reluctant to add new air pollution provisions affecting private business beyond those under consideration by the Air Quality Control Commission. The governor will review bills as they move through the process. Polis spokesman Connor Cahill said. The governor has veto power over bills his administration does not like, but the veto is rarely used. Power dynamics at the Capitol will be tested, with relatively liberal Democrats holding even larger majorities to pass legislation than they did in the 2022 session. Environmental groups frustrated by the Polis administration's lack of progress toward reducing greenhouse gas emissions and dangerous ozone hailed parts of the bill as doubling down on climate goals they say most Coloradans already support. It's a really important bill, said Heidi Lethwood, climate policy and analyst for 350 Colorado. Directives to the Public Employees Retirement Association, quote, start the conversation on the state not sinking more of people's retirement money into fossil fuel projects, investments that don't fit with our climate goals and are already losing money for investors, Lithwood said. 350 Colorado also supports bumping the 2050 greenhouse gas reduction goal from to 100% from the current 90% in line with international climate science recommendations. With state officials acknowledging in late 2022 they were not on schedule to meet 2025 greenhouse gas reductions to, of 26%, delineating intermediate targets before 2050 is, quote, the best way to ensure we get there, she said. We're falling behind when it comes to meeting our current goals. We need more investment, Hansen said. The Federal Inflation Reduction Act puts real money 
behind changes needed to make climate goals, he added. That has drastically lowered the price of climate tech across the spectrum, he said. So I think we really need state policy that's going to accelerate and take advantage of that federal action. Hansen is one of dozens of candidates who have declared themselves for Denver's spring mayoral race. Lynn Granger, Midwest and Mountain West Region Director for the American Petroleum Institute, so the trade group, quote, is generally supportive of many elements of the bill, including a provision giving the Colorado Oil and Gas Conservation Commission authority to regulate injection wells for carbon sequestration. API, the American Petroleum Institute, said it is concerned, however, about one measure, quote, which appears to compel PERA, PERA, to divest from its energy investments. Colorado remains an irreplaceable foundation of American energy security, and we are confident that the final iteration of this effort can coexist with that reality, Granger said. Hansen's Senate Bill 16 is co-sponsored by Democratic Representatives Karen McCormick, Longmont, and Emily Sirota, Denver. Some key measures of the multifaceted bill. Sets new greenhouse gas reductions goals of 65% from 2005 benchmark levels by 2035, 80% by 2040, 90% by 2045, and 100% in 2050. The state's current greenhouse gas reduction targets from a 2019 law are set at 26% in 2025, 50% by 2030, and 90% by 2050. requires the PARA board by June 1st, 2024 to adopt proxy voting procedures that, quote, ensure that the board's voting decisions align with and are supportive of the statewide greenhouse gas emission reduction totals. Goals. Adds wastewater uh, thermal energy to the definition of, quote, clean heat resource. Wastewater pipes can transfer their heat to clean water pipes that circulate to heat or cool ambient air in nearby buildings. A utility could include wastewater energy in its clean heat plan filed with the Public Utilities Commission. Gives the Colorado Oil and Gas Conservation Commission authority over injection wells used for sequestration of greenhouse gases, in part to give state authorities primacy over federal rules for the Safe Drinking Water Act. It requires local governments to expedite review of land use applications involving the renovation, rebuilding, or reconditioning transmission lines. Beginning in 2024, insurance companies doing business in Colorado with more than $100 million of activity must participate in and complete a national insurer climate risk disclosure survey. It creates a 30% tax credit for qualifying clean electric lawn and garden equipment like mowers, trimmers, and leaf or snow blowers. The retailer would be able to claim the credit and take the amount off the price at the point of sale. With Colorado off the track of its greenhouse gas reduction goals, the bill would help in clarifying the scope and pace the state must achieve, said Michael Hyatt, Deputy Managing Attorney for Earth Justice's Rocky Mountain Office. Quote, but to actually achieve these goals, Colorado must accelerate its actions on climate and fully utilize the new federal funding that will make it even more affordable 
for Coloradans to drive electric vehicles, install rooftop solar and energy efficiency measures, and stop burning fossil gas in their homes, he said. Jeremy Nichols, director of the Climate and Energy Program for Wild Earth Guardians, said, quote, It's encouraging to see legislative interest in reinforcing the need for major greenhouse gas reductions over the coming decades. This story is from the Colorado Sun. A new vision. American dream changing for some Coloradans by Christy Stedman. Amber Carlson is a Colorado native. She loves the Denver area for all its amenities, from outdoor recreation to the arts and culture scene. But with so many other people moving to the region because they also love those things, Carlson would consider moving away. I don't blame people for wanting to live here, she said. It's got a lot going on. Carlson doesn't want to uproot from Colorado, but if she did, it would be because of the region's skyrocketing cost of living. It's difficult when you've lived here your whole life and it has to be, it's become hard to stay, she said. Carlson is in her 30s. She went to Denver's George Washington High School and is currently in graduate school at the University of Colorado Boulder. She lives with her partner in a house in Wheat Ridge that he owns, a situation she feels fortunate to have. Otherwise, Carlson said, she is not sure if she would be able to afford a rental on her own. Her experience leaves her with questions about the idea of an American dream owning a home. It is, for many, a dream of a single-family home on a private plot of land in the suburbs, maybe with a picket fence and tire swing hanging from a lofty tree. But younger people are changing their perceptions about the, what the American dream should be. Driving that change is the increasingly unaffordable nature of housing, according to a few surveys, including one by Bankrate last year. Found that two-thirds of respondents cite affordability as a major hurdle to home ownership. Their pinch points included everything from salaries that didn't keep up to a lack of ability to save for down payments to high mortgage rates. The American dream has decreased in relevance. James Truslow Adams, a writer and historian, is credited with coining the term the American dream. In 1931, early in the Great Depression, in his book, The Epic of America. Quote, the American dream is that dream of a land in which life should be better and richer and fuller for everyone, with opportunity for each according to ability or achievement, Adams wrote. It is not a dream of motor cars and high wages merely, but a dream of social order, in which each man and each woman shall be able to attain to the fullest stature of which they are innately capable, and be recognized by others for what they are, regardless of their fortuitous circumstances of birth or position. Carlson reflects on all of that. She said that people began to conceptualize how to get their American dream, go to college, get a good job, buy a home in the post-World War II era. There was this idea that you could have all of this, Carlson said. More Americans these days, she said, are defining success on their own terms. More folks might see home ownership as a relic, even something that holds them back in life rather than necessary for all of their needs and desires. Buying a home is, quote, probably 
something that some people want, Carlson said. But I don't think everybody wants or needs to buy a home. Others are holding on to the idea. Bankrate found that home ownership remains a persistent part of the American dream. Home ownership is, quote, the most mentioned milestone for Americans 26 and older, but younger Americans, younger Americans see it as less important. Gen Z, aged 18 to 25, doesn't rank it as a top accomplishment like older Americans tend to. Gen Z member Caitlin Aldersey, a student at the University of Denver, is representative of the changing attitude. She remembers as a young child how the Great Recession that began in 2007 affected her family. Quote, the American dream today is much different than how my parents thought of it, Aldersey said. Today it's more based on what can be accomplished. It's not shooting for the stars anymore. Aldersey's personal definition of the American dream includes a fulfilling career, opportunities to be part of a community that one is able to give back to, and the freedom to pursue personal interests. She believes housing should be attainable for everyone, but doesn't think it defines success or happiness. Aldersey doesn't envision ever becoming a homeowner. One reason is that she wants to be able to relocate as she pursues her career goals. Another is that she wants to travel and pay off student loans. Quote, I don't think my wage or salary will ever help me afford a house or mortgage, Aldersey said. A house would not be the only thing I'd have to focus on financially. Time will tell whether homeownership will eventually become more important to younger Americans. According to Bankrate, the pull to own a home remains strong. 59% of Gen Z members want to own a home as a life goal, second only to having a successful career, 60%. For other generations, home ownership remains the life, top life goal and the likelihood of that increases with age. 87% of older adults age 68 and up cite home ownership as integral to the American dream. A look at the suburbs. Map experts dig for roots of racial separation in Metro Denver by Ellis Arnold. In 1967, black Americans were mired in the, quote, long, hot summer. Frustrations over poverty, unemployment, discrimination, and a myriad other issues spilled into the streets, leading to clashes with police and arrests in many places, including Denver. The widespread tensions over race left President Lyndon B. Johnson searching for answers. So, he issued an executive order for a report that would detail what caused the chaos. He wanted it to answer a crucial question. How can the country prevent more unrest in the future? When the report arrived seven months later, it laid out hundreds of pages of analysis and recommendations for improving race relations in America. Its message was best summed up in a sentence. Quote, to continue present policies is to make permanent the division of our country into two societies, one largely Negro and poor, located in the central cities, the other predominantly whites and affluent, located in the suburbs and in outlying areas. In other words, the issue of where people can live was at the heart of the report. It all ties into the American dream, the idea of family owning a home, building wealth as that home increases in value over time, and being able to live in whatever neighborhood a family can afford without fear of discrimination. 
Yet more than half a century later, that divide between black and white residents continues to complicate the dream in many parts of America, including the suburban towns and cities that surround Denver. The divide is less stark and less known than it was in 1967, but its legacy is still alive in the metro area where the black population tends to live in Denver or Aurora, numbering in the tens of thousands in each city. Elsewhere, black residents number in the hundreds or just a few thousand, while white residents make up strong majorities. White residents are 78% of the population in Arvada and 1% are black. White residents are 80% of the population in Littleton and 2% are black. White residents are 82% of the population in Castle Rock and less than 1% are black. So why do the metro area's communities look the way they do? The answer isn't completely clear, but two map experts have delved into local property records, uncovering data that could help to start answer that question. They're trying to discover what many have either forgotten or swept under the rug about parts of the metro area, or simply never knew. They're digging in at neighborhood level, looking for words in property documents called racially restrictive covenants that excluded people from housing by race. They're looking to discern the legacies that still echo in communities today. Christopher Theory, a map librarian at Colorado School of Mines and Golden is one of the diggers. Discovering the covenants in Jefferson County shocked him. That blew me away that this rural county at that time would have them, Theory said. As I tell people, yeah, the suburbs of Birmingham, Alabama, sure, but Jefferson County, come on. Only persons of Caucasian race, quote. Theory, a longtime resident of Golden, took inspiration from Mapping Prejudice Project, an effort at the University of Minnesota to identify and map racial covenants. He jumped into his work after the killing of George Floyd by a Minneapolis police officer. The mapping is a tedious task of sifting through mostly mundane, uncontroversial rules, like how many feet a house must sit away from the road or bans on billboards in front of homes. Theory has examined about 1,000 Jefferson County documents and found nearly 200 had some kind of race-based stipulation. He looked at documents from the 1860s to 1950, though most of them were from the 1910s to 1950. Specifically, he has poured over plats, or plans for new neighborhoods. The plat for one neighborhood, Cole Village, located along Colfax Avenue near Kipling Street in what's now Lakewood, had this to say, quote, only persons of the Caucasian race shall use or occupy any building or any lot. This covenant shall not prevent use or occupancy by domestic servants of a different race. The document was registered with the county in 1945. That type of race-based language is now unenforceable, but remains on official plats, property deeds, and other documents, according to Theory. It wasn't just developers who pushed such language, Theory said. Local elected and appointed officials of the government of Jefferson County signed the documents, Theory added. He singled out some other examples. Ownership in this subdivision shall be restricted to members of the Caucasian race, says a planning document for Sunshine Park and Golden at Sunshine and Highway Parkways dated 1944. 
quote, stipulate that no lot at any time shall be occupied or owned by any persons or persons not of the Caucasian races. However, this provision shall not prohibit the employment of persons of other races by the occupants. Says the plan for Green Acres along 6th Avenue in what's now Lakewood, dated 1939. Quote, no area shall at any time be occupied or owned by any person or persons of other than the Caucasian race. However, this shall not prohibit the employment of persons of other races on the premises by the occupants. End quote, says the plan for Happy Valley Acres in the Golden Area at South Golden Road on Orion Street, dated 1939. Quote, the said land shall be used for no other purpose than for the building and maintaining thereon and the occupancy thereof of private residences by Caucasians and the erection of necessary outbuildings. End quote, says a planning document for a part of the Indian Hills area, dated 1923. Theory has used his findings to make a map of the parts of Jefferson County where race-based rules were baked into the original plans of the housing developments. Many are concentrated in what are now the Wheat Ridge and Lakewood areas, with a handful dotting the Golden Arvada region. Others sit in the Evergreen and Indian Hills areas. It's not a complete picture. Theory is wary that he may have missed pieces. Though the map is a work in progress, it already has him wondering how the covenants still influence lives today. Beyond that, what can be done to right past wrongs? His work has made one measurable impact. It has inspired the work of another mapper, Craig Haggett, a map librarian at Denver Public Library. Haggett, who is looking into where racist restrictions lurked in the paperwork for housing in Denver, also wants to shed light on the way forward for communities. I feel like we can't know where we're going until we know where we've been and how we got there, Haggett said. Otherwise, you're just in the dark. It could take years to look through all the documents, but so far Haggett's work has revealed racial restrictions in Denver that targeted people in a mix of ways. Quote, sometimes it's excluding Negro or Asian or Mongoloid or whatever terms they used. And sometimes it just says only white people can live in a certain house, Haggett said. His team first zeroed in on the 1930s because the Ku Klux Klan was so active in the 1920s in the metro area. Since he's in the early stages of the research, Haggett is unsure which neighborhoods were home to large concentrations of racially restricted housing. One clue could be redlining, a term that refers to marking areas red on color-coded federal maps in the 1930s, reflecting the practice of restricting access to home loans in certain areas partly based on race. That disparity stood in the way of home ownership for majority black areas and other groups in urban cities. Though he doesn't know yet, Haggett expects that the neighborhoods that were not redlined, the ones deemed higher class, would have the restrictive deeds because they were trying to keep certain people out. In Denver, redlining zeroed in on predominantly black neighborhoods, but it also covered neighborhoods where the other ethnic or religious groups were present. According to the Denver Red Line map, as displayed by the Mapping Inequality Project from the University of Richmond and other university teams. Denver's redlined areas at the time included some western parts of the city and areas that surrounded downtown. But the map also redlined a small part of Aurora along Colfax Avenue and parts of west and central Inglewood, 
A sliver of Jefferson County and Edwater area landed on the map too, though it was rated slightly higher in yellow. The map reflected the view that people of certain backgrounds negatively affected the values of homes. In Inglewood, for example, an encroachment of Negroes, end quote, in an area near what appeared to be railroad tracks was listed under, quote, detrimental influences in comments that accompany for the map. And for the Five Points area near downtown Denver, comments mention, quote, Negroes, Mexicans, and the transient class of workers. Just to the east, comments called the neighborhoods, quote, a better Negro section of Denver and one of the best colored districts in the United States. Quote, were it not for the heavy colored population, much of it could be rated higher, the comments say, appearing to use the term colored to refer to residents who are not white. Effects linger to this day. Though the picture isn't entirely clear yet, what experts already know suggests that policies that deepened racial disparities influenced the makeup of today's suburbs. One driver of suburban growth that was especially visible was the American GI Bill, or the Servicemen's Readjustment Act of 1944, that provided World War II veterans funding for college tuition and low-interest mortgages. But not everyone reaped the same rewards because of the covenants that the mappers at the local libraries are looking into, along with unequal access to GI Bill benefits for white veterans compared with black veterans. The disparities played into how largely white the demographics in the suburbs turned out to be, said Christy Rogers, a teaching assistant professor in the Program for Environmental Design at the University of Colorado Boulder. Quote, that has consequences for intergenerational wealth, Rogers said. In other words, though the descendants of white military veterans saw their homes rise in value over the decades, essentially becoming investments, many black families encountered barriers that had a ripple effect as they could not pass down as much wealth to their children and grandchildren. Rogers, who is white, knows this firsthand. My dad got the GI Bill, and he went to college and bought a house. Roger said, so our family could draw on our home value and send me to college. It took decades for federal lawmakers to ban the practice of racially restrictive covenants. They were banned in the months after the long, hot summer of 1967 through the Fair Housing Act of 1968, which bars discrimination in the sale, rental, and financing of housing based on race, color, national origin, religion, or sex. The act also prohibited redlining. What's left today is a puzzle in places like Jefferson County, made even harder to discern after booming growth since the mid-1900s. It is difficult to tell how much past covenants shaped the suburbs, said Theory, the Colorado School of Mines librarian. With that said, you cannot discard the fact that these covenants did exist, Theory said. The prevailing attitudes of racism at the time still may have made black families feel unwelcome in certain neighborhoods, Theory said. There is evidence the researchers are looking are onto something. In Minnesota, researchers looking into Minneapolis and its suburbs discovered a bonus value persists today among white homeowners who benefited from restrictive covenants. Quote, we document that houses that were covenanted have on average 3.4% higher present-day house values compared to houses that were not covenanted. 
according to a 2021 University of Minnesota study entitled Long Shadow of Racial Discrimination, Evidence from Housing Racial Covenants. We also find that census blocks with a larger share of covenanted lots have smaller black population and lower black home ownership rates. The study also noted, quote, the racial makeup of neighborhoods determined in preceding decades persisted where the region was highly segregated with white families, primarily residing in suburban areas and black families within select neighborhoods in parts of Minneapolis. Quote, the segregation has continued for more than 50 years, suggesting the highly long-lasting effect that covenants had on the racial distribution of the region, according to the study. Rogers at CU added that moving to the suburbs could be more difficult for residents 